You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about two of my favorite things multifamily real estate and cash flow. So, joining me today is James Hans, principal at Green Bison Capital. James, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. Uh, happy to be here. Looking forward to the conversation today. And, James, you were an expert panelist at one of our investor shows at Wealth Channel earlier this year. So, I know a lot of our listeners are already going to be familiar with you. Um, but for those who aren't, could you please give us a, a brief introduction to Green Bison Capital and to your background? Sure. Uh, Green Bison Capital is a private equity real estate firm. We are essentially uh, a, a capital partner to a, a group of operating partners that we work with throughout the country. Um, we specialize in multifamily syndications. Uh, we also touch on um, other asset styles that are similar to multifamily, but that's our our core focus. And within multifamily, we focus on value add, the value add strategy. Uh, we have operators that have different niches within the value add space, and we can talk about that a little bit more later. But my background um, before uh, Green Bison uh, as, a, as, as a civil engineer. So um, I've spent my career in civil engineering and um, I pivoted years ago to uh, work in the, the real estate space uh, with with capital raising and uh, really spoke to me personally of, of what my personal investment uh, philosophy was. And so it was very easy for me to um, kind of get behind that and help folks in my investor group, um, you know, invest alongside of us. So what is that personal investment philosophy? If you don't mind me asking, you know, what's the What's, sure. What was the hook, you know, that, that yeah. really pulled you in why you love multifamily value add and, and these kind of deals? Yeah, well, it, you know, it started, first of all, I'm, I'm generally more on the conservative side uh, within the real estate space. So um, I, I, I uh, started uh, my real estate investing journey with small multifamily. Um, so I was, you know, I'm the landlord doing all the hard work. Um, I enjoyed that process. I still am, am involved in that, but I liked the passive investment piece as well. Um, so kind of a high return on my time was important to me. And then just kind of going further with multifamily, it's very scalable. So I had a good friend who has, you know, is an owner operator and he's built a very good business in multifamily. And I could see firsthand the scale. So uh, kind of combining, you know, what I was observing with my friend in the scalable business and then the passive investment strategy through syndications, it was kind of a, a nice win-win. And with value add, it's an income producing, you know, investment right out of the gate. Um, and it's, but it's not all income. You know, there's the, the opportunity to force appreciation and add value to the property and get nice returns on the back end as well. So it was kind of a sweet spot between, you know, a bond or something that's, you know, truly fixed income with really no upside or completely opportunistic, you know, uh, ground up development or, you know, speculative 
type of thing where it provides no cash flow, but then, you know, maybe years down the road, it would provide a tremendous, you know, um, return. So. Sure. And, you know, you already alluded to this a little bit, but, you know, we have these classic, could I almost say classical or textbook ways of analyzing real estate deals, you know, core, core plus, opportunistic value at, is that the way you would categorize multifamily real estate or do you have like a, a different way that you personally look at it or, or like a new prospective LP, you know, the dentist next door, yeah. you know, is interested. How, how, how do you, how would you kind of break down the main buckets, the main strategies within multifamily? I mean, I think that's fair. That's kind of the textbook way that you start with that, you know, core, core plus your value add and kind of keep working your way along the, the higher risk, higher return spectrum. Um, and, but I think, you know, when you say value add multifamily, like that sounds pretty specific and it actually is, is, it's still pretty broad. Um, and I've learned that over the years of, um, are we talking value add on a 20 unit property? Uh, are we talking value add on a 400 unit apartment community? Um, are we talking uh, light value add, medium heavy value add. So that's all, these are different adjectives and you can have different storylines, different operators and different offerings within each of those kind of sub buckets um, of value add. And you know, you mentioned with, with value add, there's generally higher cash flow, right? More income. There's still that potential for capital gain for, for asset price appreciation on the back end, but it's, it's more weighted to income. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I would say that's fair. Yes. And that's kind of where, where we, where we want to sit. Um, and, and why is that James? So I'm always curious, you know, when investors are attracted to that income, I mean, maybe this is obvious, but yeah, is there... you know, well, I'll tell you what, Andy, nowadays with, and we'll talk about this later, but you know, the rising interest rate environment where we are, they're not producing 7% returns generally right out of the gate. You know, generally a little thinner on year one because they're value add. We're, we're investing in the property. There's capital improvements. You know, you're going to have a, a little a decrease in occupancy naturally as you're kind of cycling through the, 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 the improvements. So, you know, right out of the gate, you're not getting that super high cash flow that quite frankly, you were, you were, probably getting on the same asset, you know, in 2017, 2015 timeframe, things have gotten thinner uh, on the returns from cash flow um, right out of the gate in those kind of early hold period years. Um, so, but in general, you know, we're getting kind of a split. We'd like to see kind of a split between cash flow returns from operations and then on the back end, you know, um, the uh, returns from the you know, a uh, higher valuation due to a higher, you know, net income. So, um, yeah, it, it's interesting times. I would, you know, that yeah. brings to mind the old Chinese <laughs> curse, may you live in interesting times. Um, but, you know, I've, I, I've heard a couple things lately. You know, one, I, th I think what you're probably well aware of is that there was like a syndicator boom, right? That, uh, you know, three years ago, it was everybody and their cousin was yep. a, a multifamily syndicator. Yep. Are, are, uh, number one, did that did that bother you? And and number two, yeah. are are some of those folks 
you know, exiting the space now, you know, it reminds me like real estate agents, right? Like during a real estate boom, there's so many real estate agents. And then yeah, when it goes bust, you know, it seems like half of them are, are gone and you yeah, know, they can find another career. Yeah. I mean, it, it did bother me. Honestly, it did. Um, there's, you know, some big coaching programs and it became kind of almost like a get rich quick type of scheme. It just, and folks were, I mean, we're in, in, in the marketing business, but, you know, it gets to a point um, where, you know, it's, it's, it's a little too much, certainly for me, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit more reserved as, as, a, as an engineer, and just kind of the way I, I am, I, you know, it just was kind of a turnoff, but you are correct. Uh, a lot of folks are in pain. Um, they had this term new Roo, the newbie guru. And that, that came about, um, <laughs> I like that. I've James, I've yeah. never heard that before. Nuru. Yeah. I gotta I gotta write that one down. That's yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was in it was in the Wall Street uh Wall Street Journal not that long ago, an article about this. So um, you know, it's it's unfortunate for folks, particularly the limited partners that were uh, affected by this. Um and but there's lots of opportunity uh with these types of deals that were were syndicated and had really kind of um, rose, rose colored glasses, uh, uh, pro formas. So, um, and are yeah. some of those deals running into trouble now where there's an opportunity for, for more experienced asset yeah. managers operators? Like, are, are you seeing any of that deal flow? Are you looking at any of that, those kind Absolutely. of deals? Absolutely. Yes, we are. Uh, we've, we've been involved in a couple already this year, acquisitions of, of, uh, properties that are, um, you know, 20% less than, what they were, you know, 12 months ago. Um, and with very more conservative underwriting as well, um, and higher interest rate environment as well. So you have these kind of hits on the the cash flow from these these metrics that we have a much better understanding of now, certainly than we did, you know, 15, 18 months ago when when you know rates were at zero. So um we're we're already been involved in a couple and there'll be more to come this year. Um, that's within our ecosystem. And then certainly it's, you know, it's in the news, it's in, um, you know, this, there's, there's a, a wave of uh, loan maturities that are coming due um, at the end of this year. Um, that's massive. So yeah, that's what, all- what have I, what's the term I've heard? Is it a cliff? Is it a wall of maturity? Yeah. I can't remember. Okay. yeah wall. Yeah. That's the term that I read recently was like this wall of, uh, and you look at it, you have these histograms of when loans are maturing with time and uh, i read recently it's data that came from costar so a very good source but four billion dollars of loan maturity is coming due from just cmbs loans in october four billion in november and this is just for multifamily; it's not other asset classes so um <clears throat> what does that look like you know we're you know how are lenders going to deal with that um you know they're obviously going to try to extend loans and work with what they have with that existing borrower. But, um, you know, you have to have a good track record. You have to be operating the property property very well, um, executing your business plan, and you have to have capital. You know, you've got to have capital reserves within the deal itself. And then you have to be have capital within your firm as well. So that's, you know, part of the issue with some of the syndications that have occurred with um, you know, these newer folks to the, to the business. Yeah. I mean, if you bought at a, a five cap 
that's now a, a six and a quarter cap or or whatever the case mm-hmm. may be, um, you know, you, you may be sitting in a place right now where you don't have any equity, right? Um, that's right. Yeah. You don't have any equity and you've got six months until you have to refi. And even if you stop distributions, you know, you just don't have, you know, you'd have to come with you know, maybe 20% more capital than you did at acquisition, you know, three, two years ago. So that's, that's the stuff I think that's happening on a macro level. And certainly when you see these big numbers produced by, you know, CoStar and those types of folks like this, this, yeah, this, there's going to be, there's pain right now and there's, there's going to be more pain. Um, kind of hard to forecast how, how far in the future, but certainly it seems through the end of this year, absolutely. Uh, with with some of the data that were, that's already being published, and and James, I have to say, you know, not that I wish anyone any ill will because I don't, but to some extent, I welcome the pain because, as an LP, like I thought, and I've really thought for the last eighteen months, twenty four months, that real estate was was too rich, was too too highly priced. I mean, it just even beautiful assets, you know, assets that you'd love to say, I, I own that, or I'm an LP in that asset, but not at any price, right? It has to make sense, you know, your your cost basis. Uh, I, you know, it's interesting talking about cap rates for a second, because you mentioned now, you know, some of these deals are assets are worth 20% less than they may have been worth uh, yeah. like 18 months ago or, or whenever. Um it's interesting to me because, you know, I guess it depends on geography, depends on sector and all that. But I feel like I haven't seen enough movement in cap rates. Like I would almost yeah. expect them to be expanding more. Is is that is that your sense as well? Or is yeah. it just that I'm not looking at the right deals to see where the real value is? I, I think there just hasn't been quite enough pain, you know, where you, you, it just takes a little bit more time for the sellers to realize that. And they're probably doing what they can to to, you know, hoping for the best here and hoping that the Fed isn't raising that rate a quarter point again. And it's not, you know, it's that, I, I just think that's, that's just the, the business of real estate in general, really, there's, there tends to be a lag in things and it's just a bit slower moving. Um, now, I, I don't know what that's going to mean, you know, in Q4, if all these things are maturing and you have this massive foreclosure, uh, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but if something, you know, happened like that, then I think yeah, you'd see you know bigger, bigger correction, sharper correction. So then, you know, you alluded to, you know, that you're still doing deals, right? Like I, I I've been saying lately, it seems like the CRE market is just frozen. Of course, that's an exaggeration, it, right? It's not totally frozen. It's a little, it's partially frozen, right? It's it's, uh, it's very slow. I'll okay. be honest, it's, it's very slow. It's not. We're not. Yeah, it's very slow. I mean, we have a number of operating partners and most of them are um, hanging tight, working their existing assets and um, not looking for deals. Again, we have a, a bid ask uh, spread here that's still there and the interest rate environment is still, you know, uncertain a bit. Right. Um, and so that's, that's what slowed deals. Now we have a couple of folks that are dominating uh some of their markets. And so they're finding deals that are distressed. They're being brought to them, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where it is. It's, it's not, you know, going after something where you have, you know, 30 folks in line that are submitting LOIs 
that's not the deals that that we participated in. These are more like here's here's something that's there's pain coming <laughs> on this project. Loans maturing and they need to refi in 90 days or 120 days, and they don't have it. And there's a storyline. There's a a JV that's separated on one of them. You know, so um, you know they these have unique storylines of some distress. So. So then, you know, you you mentioned to me this is interesting. Value add, it's a little bit. It, it can be, as you pointed out. Actually, let me let me go backwards. Value add can mean so many different things. It can mean so many different types of deals, right? Even just light value add versus heavy value add. Light value add, you could almost look at as a, you know, depending on the numbers, as a conservative style of investing. Heavy value add, you know, might be riskier. Mm-hmm. Um. But but you mentioned that you're more uh, conservative investment temperament, you know. Um, so what to you then is like what's the deal that you're looking for in in 2023? You know, just in, in the abstract. You know, I'm not talking about a particular deal, but you know, sure. what kind of cap rate are you looking for? What kind of characteristics make this appealing to you? Where where you can go into a deal and say, okay, I think I'm going to do a good job protecting my capital here. And generating cash flow, and leaving room for upside. What does that take in a world with high interest rates? Yeah, good question. I don't want to talk about cap rates because it's they're misleading, and they're so market dependent. And we're mm-hmm. we we play in a, a few different markets, some some big markets, and then some some smaller. We call it kind of steady eddy markets, smaller you know Midwest markets that cap rates are are higher naturally they're just they're just higher we're talking uh, about uh like akron ohio or what <laughs> yeah know? yeah no there's yeah there's in, in ohio and a couple of other states in that area there's sure. there's a strong um strong strong markets they're just not you know not talked about much uh, but have good good employment and strong demand for for rental um rental uh, property so but what is this you know on a kind of qualitative level i'd say <clears throat> So certainly something that's from like a mom and pop operator. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can talk about that now. It's, you know, folks who I call them a lazy landlord. That's kind of negative, but, you know, they probably don't have any, hardly any debt on the property. They're, they've got, they don't have systems in place. Maybe it's their only property. You know, maybe they've owned it for, you know, 30 years. And so they're not sophisticated. So you can right out of the gate um, increase NOI. <laughs> By you know increasing rents um, and doing it so the market rents are typically higher than than the rents that are currently on the property um, without any capital improvements. So not spending any money, you could go in and as leases expire, raise the rents and do so in a way that's up to the market rent. We're not trying to kick people out of their 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 apartments. Um, and then on the expense side, bringing systems into play. They're, Maybe they're probably not using technology. They're they don't uh, you know they probably could have a, a better insurance policy on the property or um, negotiate um, the property taxes or you uh, do rent utility billing system to get a little bit of other income. So there's lots of things you know when you look at the income statement either on the revenue side or on the expense side that can that can be done from when you're buying from a mom and pop uh, operator. Um, and so this this isn't necessarily huge capital improvements. What I'm hearing this is more operations efficiency. You know, just just kind yeah. of a, like almost like 
almost like you have a playbook yeah uh, of yeah. of how to how to run a 150 uh, unit apartment complex 100 percent it okay. absolutely is a playbook that's who we, yeah. we we partner with folks that are in like one real narrow lane and they just keep rinse and repeat on every project and they stay in a very narrow lane and that's how they have operational excellence and they they bring that to the asset to the business plan so that's my favorite kind of value add because it's value add you're adding value you're not you think value add it's like oh i'm renovating um you know spending $25,000 a unit on on improvements to the to the property and that's you know when i think of value add i'm thinking value to the investor so um which means increased NOI. Um, yeah. And you know, a, a lot of times also value to the tenant just in terms of uh, yeah. professional management and, and best practices. And I yeah. mean, maybe, maybe it even costs a little bit more. Uh, but I, you know, as a tenant, as a former tenant, you know, I, I think, I think there's value for tenants to have a professionally managed property. I'm glad you brought that up because I completely glazed over it. But it, the projects do really well when you focus on the tenant. <laughs> You focus on the tenant, the tenant experience, a sense of community, um, a sense of obviously safety, cleanliness, um, respect. Um, all of those things translate to keeping the tenant for a long period of time. Um, what really hurts on switching to the financial side is if you have a lot of turnover. Um, that's a that's a killer. Um, so you know, reducing turnover just goes right back to if you focus on the tenant, your property management is focused on the tenant and the tenant experience that it all kind of falls from there. So. And you, James, you are normally looking at class B properties or may, maybe occasionally class C. So these aren't, you know, I guess, how would you classify? Is, are these working class? Are these um, you know, workforce housing? How would, how would you classify class B or, the, or at least the class B that, that you're doing deals? Yeah, uh, I, would, I would say it's, um, I guess some of it's workforce housing or, um, you know, we're, we're looking at rents just to give rough numbers of, um, for example, buy a, a property in, in, in the Midwest and the rents are at, at 700. And you could raise it to 950, and the the tenant could actually afford, you know, they have the income to to afford a you know twelve hundred dollar a month rent. So that's part of it, and you know, in, in the in the bigger markets, rents are higher, but we're still well below, um, you know, two thousand dollars a month for rent. Um, so that's, you know, it could be you know young professionals or uh, folks that are, you know, really. A, a wide variety of industries, you know, where they work. Um, and that, that gets back to the markets that we like to be in are markets <clears throat> that are diverse, you know, and diverse in terms of employment, uh, where, you know, ideally not, not more than 20% of one sector is, is in the economy. So you could have folks that are in healthcare, um, you know, in, in retail, uh, you know, hospitality, you know, what, what have you, um, professional services, you know, all sorts of things. So. And I, I mentioned Akron. I mean, I, I grew up in Ohio, so just whatever, just was first city that came to mind, but are, you know, are, are you looking mainly in towns and cities where institutional buyers wouldn't even look? I mean, do you, do you find that there's just more 
inherent value? Would, would you classify these as tertiary markets or how do we even classify these? No, I mean, most of our markets are, are I'd say about, a, about half of them are, are primary. And mm-hmm. then we have a, 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 the other half are, um, I guess, secondary. I wouldn't say tertiary because um, that's, that's a little just too risky. Um, and mm-hmm. Yeah, it just doesn't doesn't really work. So, what would be an example then of a? Sorry to define that for me. So, what sure. what would be some examples of like a secondary market versus tertiary? Well, like a like a market like Columbus would be a market that you know would be something that's not in the top ten. You know, as opposed to you know. Um, gotcha. Yeah, and I I, I grew up in Columbus. Yeah. I would think Columbus. I mean, to me, it kind of hits all those boxes you're talking about, like rock solid. Place yeah. to embed just so many different employers, university, yeah. hospital, et cetera, et cetera. So right, right. So any of those types of markets that have you know some big employers, you know some, the anchors that you you look for in a market, mm-hmm. um, and they're just not in the not in the top ten. You know they're or not in not in Austin. You know, um, and that's that's okay. Um, so 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 you're looking then. To, I mean, to me, like a city like Columbus, you know, as you said, that wouldn't be a tertiary market at all. There still might be institutional investors, obviously buying assets in Columbus, Ohio. I mean, plenty of them, but they might not be looking at the 150 unit asset. They might be looking at something bigger. Or they might be looking for Class A. Is is that fair to say that you're kind of that's fair? Maybe, or, or maybe they shopping might be a little bit beneath beneath yeah, that surface. Absolutely. Yeah, we you have to we have to be below that. Um, we we don't want to be competing with institutional, um, but. You know, institution may be looking for a grouping of assets with one property manager, you know, so it's more very turnkey and it has that scale. So maybe we're buying one uh, in a market and, you know, then we buy the second and the third one, you know, in subsequent years. And then, you know, it's put together and and sold as a portfolio uh, to an institutional buyer who may not be looking for that single asset, even if it's improved with a one-off property manager, but you're bringing the property manager to bear on, on all three of those assets. And, you know, you're upwards of 500 units or, or what, 600 units. And then, then that's getting the attention of, of an institutional buyer. So. Understood. So, so then what does a, a typical life cycle look like? Um, you know, when green bison capital, you know, has, has a deal buys an asset, Say it's a light value add in a secondary market or whatever. Are you are you typically trying to do what you just described, like smaller roll ups that you, then you can almost could we call that arbitrage? I think any yeah. is that sure. is that the general exit strategy? Or yeah. I mean, what I just described is is a strategy. That wouldn't be something that we typically we typically do because we have kind of a a, a decent variety of operators and they have their own styles mm-hmm. um, and and strategies. Uh, within an asset type, and then also kind of longer term of who are the buyers that they're looking for on the exits of their business plans. In terms of time, uh, we're typically in that kind of three to three to five year time frame. Now, I say all bets are off. Now, <laughs> um, you know, uh, a few years ago it was it was you know two to four years or, or two to three years because the market got pretty frothy. Um, but but now it's you know as we we talk with our accredited investors that you know, one this is illiquid you know um, you got to be ready to part with the equity that you the capital you invested for 
you know, we say as a rule of thumb, just five years, mm-hmm. but it could be, could be longer, could be shorter. And so you have that Ill- illiquidity, which um, is, is an issue. Um, I say an issue as if it's like a negative thing, but it, I, I also feel like it's a positive thing as well, that illiquidity, um, considering what we're going through now. And, you know, if if you have the right business plan, the right operator, the right capital structure, including funds on, on hand, the idea here is weather the storm. You don't want to sell now. <laughs> you don't want to sell now. Even if you completed the business plan, you know, now's not the time to sell. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's one or two or three years from now, ride it out um, and continue to to operate the asset well and then exit when things are a little bit, you know, less uncertain. So with interest rates being higher, and you know, we talked a little bit about how some of these operators or or asset owners rather, sponsors, syndicators are going to be in trouble maybe in Q4 of this year into next year. But with interest rates being higher, does that change the capital structure of deals? Like are you if you're putting together a deal in 2023, are you less levered than a, a previous deal? Um, yeah. Is it just a lot more equity-heavy deals? Yeah, and that's um, you know it's, it's really by choice of the bank. It starts with the banks, right? Mm-hmm. So they're going to demand more, more, uh, more equity coming into the deal and lower leverage. Um, you know the debt service coverages, um, you know maybe are more stringent. Um, you have to have more cash on hand that's in the bank for a certain amount of run out, you know, instead of 12 months, maybe it's 18 or 24 months. Um, that's just there. That just isn't touched. It's, it's, you know, rainy day fund kind of thing. So um, that's, that's definitely what's, what's changed things a bit is, um, you know, leverage now is, you know, it could be 50%, you know, 55% maybe 60, maybe, but not much over that for the stuff that, you know, we're, we're kind of seeing that that works. Um, but, you know, and again, that, that translates to, to some lower returns, right? Because not as levered at a, at a low borrowing cost on lever on, on leverage. So, um, but, you know, I look at it as well as, um, as it being, um, you know, if if it works, and the pro forma works, um, and has you know reasonable returns, have to have conservative underwriting. I, I hate even saying conservative underwriting because I feel like everybody says, "Well, I have conservative underwriting, conservative assumptions," but um, you know, really not assuming much growth at all during the hold period. Very very modest amounts, um, and then you know more, um, you know conservative assumptions on other other sides of things is where you know where what we look for and and otherwise we're not going to participate so understood and i mean i i think to me that's the core appeal of income investing of cash flow investing is it's not all built on this always got to sell always got to you know trade in trade out trade in trade out yeah. if you own an asset and you don't need to sell it in the next 12 months and it's generating positive income then great, right? Like, you know, yeah. like I, I hopefully a high cash on cash, you know, number, but still, yeah. you know, if it's generating positive income, then you can generally afford to wait, right? And we we 
there's always going to be bull markets and there's yeah. always going to be bear markets, right? That's right. And and what I like about another thing of the benefit of this type of investing is it's it's tax friendly. It really is. It's a it's a great I call it like a tax deferred strategy because you have all of this depreciation and within the investment itself, if you look at it kind of in a vacuum of just this single investment, you're going to have a tremendous amount of depreciation, which translates to really paper losses, losses on your K-1 that uh, you can use to offset passive income from another investment or right. you know, carry it forward while you're still collecting nice distributions through the whole period. So. Yeah, very real estate. I mean, it's it is the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in terms of those tax benefits, all kinds of different structures. I mean, you know, between depreciation, as you mentioned, ten thirty one exchanges. Yeah. Uh, my my business partner Jimmy would be mad at me if I didn't mention opportunity zone funds. You know, right. ground up. You know, the, those kind of benefits. Um, now, you know, folks doing 1031 exchanges, they can do, you know, 1031 into a DST, uh, or even, well, up, even this, well, and even this, this type of, uh, this type of deal, you could 1031 into a lot of folks don't, don't quite realize that okay. depends on the States, but, uh, through a tenancy in common structure, um, you can marry up the benefits of a 1031 with the benefits of a syndication. Um, so you don't have to do it in a DST that's broadly, you know, diversified over lots of lots of assets. It, it could be into uh, a single asset. Um, it, it you know, there's the structure has to be there, but but it's it's been done and it's being done successfully through a through a tick. So yeah, the ticks never went away. So yeah, they're out there, and I'm I'm sure I'm missing you know a dozen other <laughs> tax strategies for real yeah. estate investors. Well, James, my my last question, we're almost out of time. It's always dangerous to ask anybody to make any predictions. And I guess you already kind of did later this year, but if I could give you kind of a bigger, broader question, you know, you've been in this multifamily space, multifamily value add, doing what you've been doing for quite some time. And as we we talked about, there have been other syndicators who've kind of come and gone or or there was a boom of syndicators and maybe now they're they're kind of bleeding out leaving the space now what do you see you know the next 5 to 7 years is the, is is multifamily going to stay you know cuz it was white hot like you know between 2020 2021 it's just like it, it it was amazing honestly it was like yeah. i mean it's popular for a reason so yeah. i'm i'm not i'm not saying it will ever be unpopular but do you see multifamily continuing to grow, continuing to generate very strong, stable, consistent returns overall, you know, over that five, 10, 15 year time frame? I I do, depending on, you know, the folks that are doing the work, the the sponsors, the property managers, their their values, their, you know, their their ability to to bring operational excellence to 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 their businesses. The reason I, I say uh, over a five to seven year period, I think multifamily is still there um, because we have a, you know, we have a affordability uh, issue of housing. There's a lack of housing. We're still in a rental, you know, economy, right? I mean, rising interest rates doesn't make homes more affordable. No, you know, I argue it pushes you in the other direction towards rent. So, 
on a macro level, that I don't see that going away. I mean, we need more houses. There needs to be more, more, um, you know, more properties um, that are there, and they're just not coming coming to market to meet the the demand. And that's, you know, whether it was COVID or now we're in this interest rate um, skyrocketing thing that's happened in the last fifteen months or so, that's still kind of pushing the pause button on on the ability to bring more affordable housing and more um, you know more homes single family homes to to the marketplace to meet you know the the demand so that, that's a, that's a good point james where even if it is uh let's say this is kind of a rough year for multifamily yeah or it's a little bit frozen if anything does that just you know <laughs> hate to say it but help the underlying uh fundamentals from yeah. an investment standpoint i think it's good what we're what we're experiencing right now is good it's healthy it, it's you know what we had the last couple of years is not sustainable it's not right. sustainable um it's not healthy it was great when you know, you're selling and you're getting these fantastic returns but you know you zoom out that that doesn't work it just just doesn't keep working you have to have some sort of correction and and that's what we're going through now and i think it's you know, ultimately, it's it's a good thing. The underlying assets, the underlying strategy, um, the fundamentals are still make sense on a, on a just I'm, I'm making kind of a generalist statement here, but they they still make sense. We talk about office or some of these other assets where, you know, it gets a little bit more murky, but people still need a place to live. They need it to be affordable and clean and safe and want a sense of community. So. You know, that's all kind of multifamily and what we've been talking about. A hundred percent. Yeah, I, I can't argue with that. Well, James, appreciate your your candor today and all your insights on the multifamily markets. That being said, where can our audience of high net worth investors and family offices go to learn more about Green Bison Capital and your offerings? Sure. Uh, yeah, they could reach out to me on greenbisoncapital.com. I'm also on LinkedIn under James Hans or Green Bison Capital. Uh, just you know, reach out and uh, we can have a start to have a conversation. Appreciate it. Sounds great. And James, thanks again for joining the show today. Thanks, Andy. Had a good time. Appreciate it. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.